the Bible is all about Jesus from Genesis to Revelation. In fact, if you are troubled about some of the books in the Old Testament, just look for the Messiah there. He's in the Old Testament as well as the New. And I have the privilege tonight of sharing with you a passage of Scripture in the New Testament in John's Gospel about this marvelous good shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're in John chapter 10, and I'd like to share with you some thoughts beginning in verse 22. John chapter 10, beginning in verse 22. Here's what it says. At that time, so we're being helped already to get a time indicator. We're going to locate the episode we're about to reach at a certain point in time. At that time, the feast of dedication took place in Jerusalem. We have time and place. At the time of something called the Feast of Dedication, that was the time, and in a place called Jerusalem, you've heard about it, uh, pretty soon it's possible that our embassy might be there. Isn't that something? Well, okay. So at that time, at the Feast of Dedication in Jerusalem, that's, that's exactly the scenario we're about to read about. Now, the Feast of Dedication is holiday. It lasts eight days. Now, you may be saying, well, the feasts of Israel or the holidays of Israel, they are recorded for us in Leviticus chapter 23. You would be right. There are seven feasts of Israel mentioned in Leviticus 23. God gave these to Moses for the Jewish people. But if you're a real student of the Bible, you'll know Leviticus 23 doesn't say a thing about this unusual holiday called the Feast of Dedication. That's because there's no mention of it at all in the Old Testament. It's a holiday whose origins are in what we call the intertestamental period. That means the time between the Old and New Testament. There was a historical event that took place, I'll tell you about it in just a second, during which time this holiday was originated. It's also known as Hanukkah. Have you heard of Hanukkah? That's what this is, the Feast of Dedication. The Hebrew word Hanukkah means dedication, which leads to this question, what dedication? What was dedicated? And, and, and to answer that, I'd like to just uh, um, share a little bit of, of history with you. In about 323 B.C., a man named Alexander the Great died. Alexander the Great conquered most of the then known world. When he died, he left no heirs. So his kingdom fell into the hands of his four most powerful generals. One of them settled a territory to the north of Israel. And later, after that particular, it's called the Seleucid Empire. After that was settled, a leader came to power at a certain point in about 175 B.C. named Antiochus, Antiochus IV. But he didn't struggle with humility at all. That was just not something that would slow him down. So he took on the name Antiochus Theos Epiphanes, which means Antiochus, the visible image of God. How about that? That's what he called him. Now, the Jews of the day didn't like him very much, so they changed his last name. Instead of Epiphanes, they called him Epimenes, which means the crazy one. 
They changed a little, little bit of Jewish humor there. But it was nothing funny about Antiochus. He was a madman, savage. And so he attacked Jerusalem in about 174 B.C. And it was said that about 80,000 Jews at the time lost their lives and an equal number were carried off into slavery. In fact, Antiochus made a prohibition against carrying Scripture, the Torah, or the first five books of the Bible. If you were a Jew living then in Jerusalem and you were caught carrying the Hebrew scriptures, it would be so under penalty of death. Furthermore, Antiochus made it illegal for circumcision to take place. Now, this is very, very important in Jewish tradition and in biblical tradition. It's a sign of belonging to the covenant. He said, forget that, no more circumcision. And if moms birthed a child to be circumcised on the eighth day, if the mom did this and was caught, the mom would be circumcised and her slain infant would be hung around her neck as she was impaled on a cross. This was not a good guy. Antiochus Epiphanes was his name. Furthermore, he desecrated the temple. So the temple stood in an elevated platform in Jerusalem. There were courts around the temple until you actually got into the temple itself. He desecrated it in many ways, did Antiochus. One of the things he did was to establish a brothel on the very precincts of the holy temple. And furthermore, he, uh, he had his uh, uh, soldiers construct a big statue of Zeus, pagan god, and he made the Jews, as they passed by, bow to Zeus. If they refused, then they would be slaughtered immediately. And then he did something else. He took a pig, and he had it offered on the holy altar sacrifice at the temple. He had the pig offered to pagan gods. So this is not this is not good stuff. And it so disturbed a particular group of people that they began a three-year uh, period of resistance to deal with Antiochus. They were located in a village called Modi'in. I have been there. It's a real place. Modi'in. It's located 15 miles to the northwest of Jerusalem. There lived a priest known as Mattathias. And Mattathias, the priest, lived there in Modi'in with his five sons, the oldest of whom was Yehuda or Judas, but not the bad guy. This is a good one, Yehuda. And he later came to be known as the Maccabee or the Hammerer, the Hammerer. And so Judah the Maccabee formed a band of guerrilla fighters and they resisted the influence and presence of Antiochus and his army for three years such that in 164 BC they succeeded in forcing Antiochus and his army outside of Jerusalem. And one of the first things they did was to cleanse and rededicate the temple. And so it was called Hanukkah. So the first Hanukkah, or Feast of Dedication, that's what it is, dedication of the cleansed temple, it took place in 164 B.C. And Jews around the world to this very day still celebrate it. It's celebrated on the 25th of Kislev, which is the ninth month in the Jewish calendar, and it corresponds to our month, December. On another occasion, I'd like to chat with you about the interesting correspondence between the 25th of Kislev and the 25th of December, a day very important 
to us. Anyway, in 164 BC, the temple was cleansed and rededicated, and the people celebrated with Hanukkah and all kinds of uh, partying and good celebration. And I mention this to you because even though it's not mentioned, this holiday in the Old Testament, it's of quite a great significance. And the Lord Jesus himself not only knew of it, but he observed it. So take a look with me now a little more closely. Verse 22 and 23. At that time, now we know the time, Feast of Dedication, when it took place at Jerusalem, it was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. He had left the city. He specifically came back into Jerusalem in order to celebrate Hanukkah, the feast of dedication, because the Lord Jesus in the flesh was Jewish and was observant. So he kept all of the feasts of Israel and including this intertestamental holiday called Hanukkah. Now, we read here that it was winter and he was walking in a place called the Portico of Solomon. If you were going up to the temple, the first courtyard you would come to before you got to the temple itself was called the Court of the Gentiles. And that's as far as you guys could go. Man, those were the good old days. It's called the Court of the Gentiles. You can go up there and worship, but you couldn't get closer than the confines of the Court of the Gentiles. Now, on each side of the Court of the Gentiles were porches or porticos or colonnades. On the east side, excuse me, on the west side of the court of the Gentiles was something called the royal porch, and on the east side was this one, which we're reading about, the porch or portico of Solomon. It was a, um, an area with a roof on it, open on its sides, and uh, suspended, or supported, I mean, by pillars about 40 feet high, and people would walk in the winter and at other times, under the portico of Solomon, they would discuss things. Rabbis of different schools of rabbinical thought would always be located at the portico of Solomon. There they would teach and talk to their followers. It was no different with Rabbi Jesus. He spent a lot of time there at the portico of Solomon. Now, especially now, because the text tells us it was winter, and in Jerusalem, you may not uh, be aware of this, it can get quite cold in the winter. It can get rainy, it can get windy and cold, and they even get snow from time to time. It's unusual, but they get it. So in the winter, around Kislev, the ninth month in the Jewish holiday, the time of Hanukkah, the Lord is there, and he is literally walking under the portico of Solomon. And while this is happening, the Jews, it says, therefore gathered around him. I had mentioned this before, and let me do it again. When it says the Jews here, a more accurate translation is the Judeans. The Judeans, that's actually the word in the Greek. I'm not trying to unduly defend my people, but in the interest of biblical accuracy, this is not talking about the Jews in general. It's talking about the Jewish religious leaders who lived in Judea, in which Jerusalem was located. The leaders of the Jewish religion, the Judean religious leaders, that's who we're talking about here. So they gathered around him. Now the word there, gathered, 
It's lost on us a little bit in English. It really means they hemmed him in. They boxed him in. They surrounded him. This was an unfriendly approach to him. They wanted to make sure he had no place to go because they were plotting his overthrow. They were looking for a charge against him. And so they were saying to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, that means Messiah, tell us plainly. So they insinuate he has not clearly and plainly revealed his messianic identity to them. And so in verse 25, we read about the Lord's response. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these bear witness of me. Isaiah, hundreds of years before Jesus was enfleshed and on earth, made a statement about what would typify the presence of the anticipated coming Messiah. And so in Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6, we read, Then, when the Messiah comes, future from Isaiah's time, then the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf Deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. And the Lord <coughs> did all of these miracles already. We've been reading about it in John's gospel. And so the Lord is saying, the miraculous works which I performed, consistent with the prophet's prediction of what things will be like when Messiah comes, these testify of me. It was clear he was the Messiah, but they were looking for a Messiah of a different kind. They did not want to be saved from their sins, which they denied. They wanted to be saved in a political sense from the Romans. And so they denied the Messiahship of Jesus right in their midst. And so he continues to speak with them in verse 26, but you do not believe. Because you are not of my sheep. So the real problem they had was not lack of evidence, nor was their problem lack of information. It is, if I'm reading this correctly, they were not of his sheep. And since they were not his sheep, we've been reading about the metaphor of sheep and shepherd and how the sheep hear the shepherd's voice, and so on. Since they are not, since these Jewish religious leaders are not of his sheep, they have no personal relationship with him. He is the chief shepherd, and therefore, they don't understand a thing he's saying. I reflect on what it says elsewhere in the Bible. A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. They're smart, they're credentialed, they're powerful, they're blind. They can't recognize who their own shepherd is. The religious leaders wanted Jesus to speak plainly. Spit it out, say they. And boy, does he speak plainly. I think more plainly than they perhaps were comfortable with. Previously, he told them, you are not 
the true shepherds of Israel. Now he tells them, nor are you the true sheep. Very plainly is he speaking. They wanted him to speak boldly and clearly and plainly, and he did. And he told them that though they are Jews and though they are Hebrews and though they are rabbis and all the rest, they are not his sheep. In fact, he says, his sheep, he has them. His sheep are different. They're in a category of their own. And in fact, he says this of his sheep in verse 27. My sheep, remember, it's not the Jewish religious leaders. No, he says, you're not of my sheep. But my sheep hear my voice. And what's more, I know them and they follow me. Christians go where Christ leads. Christians go where the Spirit of Christ and the Word of Christ lead. If you want to look for any description of Christians, a Christian is a follower of Christ. Just like sheep follow their good shepherd. The Lord Jesus said, you people are not my sheep because one of the Marks of true sheepness is that the sheep hear the voice of the shepherd and follow. If you are someone intent on listening to the voice of Jesus, expressed primarily in Scripture, doing what it says, if you're looking to him for guidance such that you want to follow his lead, you just have uh, received evidence of the fact that you're in his fold. You are one of his sheep. You hear his voice and you follow. Now, don't disqualify yourself too soon. None of us do it with perfection. I'm not talking about perfection. I'm talking about direction. I'm telling you, when I became a Christian, things changed. My whole direction changed. I didn't become perfect by no means. I still had to struggle with sin, not the penalty of it. It was paid for by Jesus. But my whole direction changed. I found myself not interested. This is interesting in watching the same stuff on TV. Isn't that something? No preacher told me that. I just, I just lost interest in it. I didn't feel good about it. I found myself not drinking what I used to drink. Isn't that something? Really weird. Nobody preached to me about it. It just, I don't know, things began, things began to, to change. I found myself using my money on different things. You want to hear this? I'm a Jewish guy. I found myself giving it away. <laughs> to the church. These were changes. I remember one time I told you this a million times, but, but, uh, but, but uh, I, I'll tell you a million and one. I was playing basketball. I was in the military, and there was a converted uh, bomber factory. The military made basketball courts in it, and we would play basketball there all hours of the night. And we were playing, and uh, in the course of the game, I used the Lord's name in vain. No one was around. There was no Baptist preacher there, not even a Methodist. There was nobody. It was just me. But the, the place might as well have been filled with preachers telling me, Stuart, don't do that. That's how real, I just felt the sensation, <gasps> I should not refer to the one who saved me from sin, suffered and died on the cross so frivolously. I should not profane his name. I should not use his name in vain. Well, later in the course of the game, I did it again. 
You know, old habits die hard. And I felt the same sense. I looked around. I mean, the sensation was as if it was a, a, a literal voice telling me not to do it. To my knowledge, since that, that was decades ago, I don't recall ever using the Lord's name in vain since then. No, I, I, I'm, I'm not perfected yet. I'm in the process like you of being more and more conformed to the image of Christ. But my whole direction is, is so different. You know, I found myself in a church. I was the only Jew in that. It was a small country church outside a military base. It had a big old long name. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to, how to stand, when to do this, when to do that. And I felt so at home. That was my family. And the preacher stood up and opened the Bible. And oh, my goodness. I had such a hunger for what he had to say. And we'd sing songs like we did tonight, the words of which were so stirring. And it was just a whole different. And then I remember going home. And though I continued to love my family, I felt closer to my church family than I did to my biological family. Oh, I didn't separate from them. I don't mean that. I mean, I had less in common with them. The value systems were so very, very different. I know I'm one of the sheep of the good shepherd's fold. I know it. I have evidence of it. Do you? Look, it says right here, my sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. You know the part I like here? It's not just that my sheep hear my voice. How about these words? I know them. Oh, my goodness. Don't you get tickled when someone famous knows you? You get to brag about that? I do that. Yeah, I, I do that. You know, you run into someone famous. I don't know. You, you lay claim to a relationship with that person. You know what that means? Nothing. <laughs> As we sit here now, if you're one of the sheep of the good shepherd, he knows you, everything about you. You never have to plead, oh, God, take an interest, take notice of me. What? And I know them. That's called a personal relationship with Almighty God. And there's more if you're one of his sheep. Verse 28, and I give eternal life to them. And they will never perish. And no one, I like these two negatives, never and no one, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. The chief shepherd promised to give the sheep a life that knows no end. Wow. And the sheep are secure in it. Look, it says, no one will snatch them out of my hand. Jesus, the good shepherd, holds onto his sheep with such tenacity and such strength that no foe, no thief could ever surprise him, take him unawares, and pluck out from his hand that which is his alone. No one is strong enough to undo his grasp on his sheep. And the good shepherd has made it his mission, think about this, to make sure his sheep arrive home safely. I don't struggle to retain my salvation. What? I'm being held on to by the good shepherd whose premium purpose is to get me home. No one can pluck us out of his hand. And he says, I give to them eternal life. Don't miss this. 
Eternal life is a gift. I give to them eternal life. Eternal life comes as a gift. You don't work for it. You don't earn it. Therefore, you can't forfeit it. It's a merciful, undeserved gift. Praise the Lord. I'm telling you, if we contributed to it in any way, sure you could force it. You could forfeit it. But if it comes as a gift, unconditional, undeserved, oh my goodness, you never forfeit it. It's not payment for good works. It's a gift. Eternal life is a gift freely given, never to be taken back by the giver. The life the good shepherd gives to his sheep is called eternal life. It is not called temporary life. If you could lose it, it's not eternal. Folks, this passage is perhaps the strongest one in all the New Testament to persuade us that once saved, always saved. And I want to know, what biological kid could feel secure if from day to day that kid doesn't know if he's still part of the family? Well, that's not how our Heavenly Father treats us. He wants us to know with assurance, no matter what, he'll never leave us or forsake us. Now, that doesn't make us coast. That makes us grateful. That which is most precious, we can never forfeit. Eternal life, given as a free and undeserved gift. Now, the time of all this was Hanukkah, the Feast of Dedication. And while the people there now in Jerusalem were focused on celebrating the rededication of the temple, the Messiah was focused on winning a dedicated people during the Feast of Dedication, his sheep. And furthermore, he says, this will be our last verse, verse 29, my father who has given them to me. So there I pause again, and I look at this, and this is quite overwhelming. I don't know what you see when you look in the mirror. I don't know how you feel about yourself, even as you're sitting here right now. We could feel so terrible about ourselves from time to time, but this maybe, maybe will, will help. According to this phrase, my father who has given them to me, that means Christians are given by God the Father to Jesus the Son as a gift. Now, you may feel like a loser, but you, if you're a Christian, don't know what you're talking about. The Father is giving you as a gift to his most precious, only begotten Son. And if the Father is doing that, can you see how invested he is in your perseverance until the end? Now, you may feel like a loser and not a gift. You may feel like a booby prize. Well, you can feel all you want, but it doesn't square with Scripture. And if you're one of the sheep of the Lord's fold, I hope you hear his voice and not your own. And here's his voice. The Father has arranged for it that by your faith, you become a gift presented by the Father to his most precious Son. And... I can promise you that your salvation is secured because this very Father who presented you as a gift to the Son, look what it says, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. The Father is greater than men. The Father is greater than angels. The Father is greater than devils. And no one is able to snatch you out of the Father's hand. In verse 28, we found out we are in the Lord's hand. Now in verse 29, we find out furthermore, 
we're in the Father's hand. So I have something in my pocket here. It's called a paper clip. We spare no expense when it comes to illustrations. Here's a paper clip. Imagine the paper clip is you, one of the sheep of the good shepherd. And I put you in the good shepherd's hand right there. He's the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega. He's the agent of creation. He's the all-powerful one. You are securely in his hand. Verse 28, but there's more. Now, verse 29, we find out you're also in the Father's hand. The Son's hand, the Father's hand, keeping you secure on to eternity. You tell me who could peel back these two layers of omnipotence to get to you. You tell me. What foe can release you from the Father's grasp and from the Son's grasp? And this idea, yeah, but you can walk away from salvation. Who do you think you are? Not even your stubborn, rebellious flesh can get you out of the loving grasp of the Father and the Son. Yes, once saved, always saved. I had a conversation with a guy recently and used that term in a derogatory way. Well, that's a compliment. That's good theology. Once saved, always saved, and this text really, really hammers it home, it seems to me. There's no power in the universe that's more powerful than the Father, not Satan, not his demons, and not even your stubborn flesh and mine. And that's why I love blessed assurance. Jesus is mine. What a foretaste of glory divine. Are you one of his sheep? Then you're an heir of salvation. Purchase of God. Born, not of your good deeds and virtue and pedigree. Born of his spirit. Washed in his blood. Perfect submission. All is at rest. I, in my Savior, am happy and blessed. Could I tell you something? This is my story. This is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. I have nothing further to say.